0: that my uh, rather poor little words can't disturb it. So that's the evening of the first day of the retreat. I wonder how you're all doing. Everyone's still here, which is a good sign. and in the still being here there may well be moments of uh, wonder delight peace engagement with what you're noticing and some of the other kind of beautiful qualities that can be there in retreat and there may well have been moments of struggle of confusion of difficulty because both of those things are what it's like to be human what it's like to be alive and so when we come to retreat even though in some ways we kind of leave a lot of our lives aside of course our lives tend to follow us in here. Like the title of that book by John Cabot zinn Wherever you go, there you are. We can't help but be confronted with where we're at in our lives. With the things that are current for us with the various ways we make sense of our life with the things we identify with with our ideas about who we are and how we are our ideas about our body, our mind, our personality, our history (coughs) and no doubt during the day you found yourself confronted in that way confronted by the, how we feel ourselves to be and very often confronted then by the, uh, the gap, the distance between how we feel ourselves to be and how we feel we should be, some ideal. We tend to rather painfully measure ourselves <coughs> excuse me, against that ideal. We can even conceive of the spiritual of spiritual practice as the journey across that distance from where we're at to where we would like to be, or where we idealise being, or some vision of enlightenment or peace, realisation, whatever we might call it. I think maybe it's more accurate to think of spiritual spiritual path not so much as the journey across that distance but more the dissolution of the gap as we understand what it is really to be human what the nature of this body, mind, consciousness really is So I'd like to look a little bit at some of the layers of that. Of how we make sense of this extraordinary mystery of being alive. (coughs) And I'd like to make sense of it through one of my all-time favorite Dharma lines. Which is this famous saying by... The Sagadatta Maharaj was an Indian teacher from Bombay, died about 20 years ago. And there's a great book of conversations with him called I Am That. And this gem of a quote is on the back cover of the book. It says, Wisdom tells me I am nothing love tells me I am everything between these two my life flows must be at least 15 years since I first heard that line and 15 years later I'm still getting juice out of it it's one of the most fantastic enunciations of the human condition. So I'd like to just uh, try to uncover some of that a bit. This sense of uh, being human, kind of made up of layers the physical sense data that we get the ideas we have about it the impressions that we generate the force of all our past experience that we've thought about and felt and the way memory conditions our current perceptions And in this kind of practice, we're immediately confronted by those layers in different ways. We're immediately confronted in some obvious and yet nevertheless extraordinary way by exactly how our life is. It's impossible to experience anything else other than exactly how our life is. so that when we come to sit down quietly and we have some sort of framework called um, paying attention to our breathing, what we experience when we sit down and pay attention to our breathing is the exact condition of our life. That's what makes this, what I was calling last night, the perfect gateway. Whatever I'm thinking, whatever I'm feeling, whatever reaction I may be having, whatever the perception is, it's like a complete readout of where I'm at with my life. So... I sit here and have the thought... I can't think of one then I wonder if anyone's had a thought today you can help me out with one (laughs) We sit in here and have the thought Uh, I wonder how much longer till the bell rings I wonder if anyone had that thought today And the tendency is, if we haven't got any um, space, any steadiness, any perspective, the tendency is to just buy into, straight away, to buy into the content of the thought. I wonder how long, till the bell rings. And all those, that, those layers, all that the the way we conceive of time, the what the bell represents for us, the sense of impatience, the, the the immediately the sense of relief that we've associated with the bell ringing, all that comes into play. But we don't tend to notice all that coming into play. If there's no perspective, if there's no space around it, we tend to just fixate on the object of the thought. The bell. Ringing. As if it the, the bell represents our salvation. And we could, and you might find it's happened, we could somehow our whole uh, sitting quietly breathing in and out can become hijacked by focusing on the bell focusing on <coughs> how much longer the sitting would be a kind of our participation in life bodily life, hearing life emotional life kind of mysterious and wide open uh, Movement in which our life is actually unfolding is—it's inaccessible because it's all been narrowed down to obsessing around this thought. When will the bell ring? Of course, it could be obsessing around any other thought. What's of real interest to us as meditators, if you like? What's of real interest to us as being? profoundly interested in what on earth is going on in this being human is not the bell or the ringing but the fact that this configuration I find myself in now of impatience, of wanting the bell to ring it's the blueprint of where I'm at and therefore it's the perfect place to explore to see what is this what's really happening when there is some space and perspective we can actually feel some of those forces happening we can feel the arising of the thought oh, I wonder how much longer maybe even before the arising of the thought we notice some bodily discomfort some it might even be very subtle some kind of twinge of discomfort momentary even and then the response that comes to it one of a moment of agitation moment of agitation conditions the thought oh I wonder how much longer And so it's, it's possible to experience the same thought the same sense data coming in the same thought that it gives rise to without it getting any grip on the mind without it getting any grip on our well-being. I wonder what time the meditation ends. (gasps) There's that thought, it comes, it has its little uh, freak-out, and it goes. And just in the seeing that one thought, what we start to sense is, another kind of relationship with our inner life, in which it doesn't have that kind of tyrannical hold over us, in which we don't need to give thoughts the authority that we so often and easily and unconsciously give to them. I was just uh, speaking with a friend recently, who described a little bit the similar process. She said she was uh, at a workshop recently (coughs) and very often she kind of doesn't easily or quickly bond with a group of people. She finds herself often a bit more on the outside, (coughs) feeling a little shy or reticent. And she noticed as she was kind of observing the group she noticed this tape running mentally. Saying, oh yes, oh yes. As people were speaking, they'd go, oh yes, they seemed a bit confused. Oh yes, I don't have that problem. Oh yes, that one all oh, yes. probably needs to do some more work on that, yes. That's not an issue for me. But she said what was different was, she, it was just like a tape running. It was no different to any other bit of sensory information that might be happening like the sound of a car outside or well, it was just something that was going on blah, 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 blah. and she noticed uh, she knew in the scene oh that tape is so often running but often it's running in a way that rather than noticing it running I'm just immediately reacting to it And therefore, living out of that sense, oh, that one is like this, oh, this one's like that, and perpetuating a sense of feeling separate from, or cut off from a group. And she was amazed, over the next few days that she participated in this workshop, how suddenly, easily, effortlessly, and beautifully, she felt very, very connected to people. And in the background, the tape was still running. You see, the experience, the, the kind of sensory input, didn't change. But there was a, a perspective that just didn't believe in it as being authoritative. As something that was true. As something she needed to believe in. And so this in very large measure is part of our work of looking at our life and our relationship to what's happening. It tends to be rather tragically that we can put a lot of effort into trying to feel peaceful in meditation. I have to own up. I can put my hand up. I won't ask you to put your hand up. <laughs> but I can own up to spending several years of meditation practice desperately trying to make my mind peaceful. And I can put my hand up as well to not having had very much success. Sometimes mind does become very peaceful but the very the very nature of the mind becoming very peaceful sometimes really doesn't seem to be as a result of something i've done i can't claim the credit for making my mind peaceful these things don't quite go together, the sense of peaceful and the sense of making it happen. So I invite you to, to look and see if there's some way in which your meditation practice is a struggle to make your mind a certain way. Because it can be a mixed message, it can be confusing. Because we spend this time sitting quietly, eyes closed, breathing in and out. House is quiet, people glide round, looking very peaceful. We could make the mistake of thinking, Oh, I should be peaceful. I've got to make my mind peaceful. And the very effort to make our minds peaceful can the very effort of trying to do that can in fact make our minds very unpeaceful, very agitated, very disappointed, very frustrated. Our work isn't to make our minds peaceful, but rather to learn how to be peaceful with the way our minds are. We spoke this afternoon about this quality of allowing. Being peaceful with the worried mind. Having enough peace or allowance to let the mind shake. It's shaking. and to not need to give it authority, to not need to follow the thought. Extraordinary freedom in life. To not be under the tyranny of having to believe in every thought, having to follow the thoughts we have, having to believe that they're true. that we can know the movement of a thought know it very well and see it come see it have its voice see it go and know that it didn't make a ripple in our being So we find ourselves here with thoughts, with body, mind, emotions, and with a tendency to take ownership of them. And we do that in a a variety of rather chaotic ways, if not chaotic, at least um, incoherent Sometimes we take ownership of the sense just of our body. This is who I am. And we will do that in different ways, but we can see of it as, oh, I'm in pain, for example. Or um, what would be the other way? If we get uh, jostled in the lunch queue in the, in the frenzy to get the lunch we say oh he jostled me no? and then there's a sense of the ownership the identification is with the body as who I am no? it lands there and we say this is who I am he jostled me and the sense of me is completely tied up with this no? that starts down at our toes and goes up to our head if he jostles over there a bit, we don't mind. If he jostles over there a bit, we don't mind. But If he jostles here, oh, he to me. And the ownership lands right there. But isn't it interesting that at other times, we don't identify with this this lump of flesh as who I am, but rather as something I've got. And so we might then say... Uh, my leg hurts. Can you see the ontological shift? Hmm? This might sound like abstract, but this is the stuff of the way we construct our sense of identity, the way we we actually take ourselves to be this lump of flesh. He jostled me, and then it shifts to the the me is somewhere else. It's the owner of this lump of flesh. Huh? Hmm? I've got a body. My body. Do you see the difference? The fact that we can do this ought to ring alarm bells. The fact that I can carry on happily through my life f- thinking, one minute claiming to be this, this lump of flesh, the next minute claiming to be some other entity that possesses this lump of flesh. He jostled me. I'm this. I've got a body my body or if you've been doing this for a while you start to speak of the body which implies somehow less attachment oh the body the body is feeling unwell today (laughs) Sagadatta Maharaj says, "Wisdom tells me, I am nothing. Wisdom, is that capacity to really investigate, rather than taking for granted these habitual reactions that don't even uh, aren't even coherent. As I say, habitual taking body to be who I am, and then a few minutes later habitual." taking myself to be the owner of the body. Habitual, giving authority to thoughts when they arise. Wisdom is that willingness to be really steady. Willing to allow. And to notice that whatever arises in consciousness, that means whatever experience I can have, very nature of experience is that it arises in consciousness. If it didn't, we, it wouldn't be an experience, no? We wouldn't be able to know it, to be in touch with it. So everything arise, that arises in consciousness, thoughts, body, impressions, sense data, how could it be who I am when it's something that's being noticed? It's something I'm aware of. I'm paying attention to. This is an important point. I'm wondering if it's clear, as all these buddhic blank faces. Stare. So, if it's not clear, please raise your hand and say the piece that's not clear. Yes, thank you. No, just that it's not clear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <clears throat> The very fact that I can notice the body, bodily life, pain in my knee, or a nice feeling in my chest, the body is being noticed. Hmm? So the body can't be who I am because it's what I'm seeing. Can't it be part of who? Okay, we could we could postulate that it's part of who I am, but we can notice and rather than this being in, trying to establish a a web of ideas it's really about us noticing as precisely as we can that everything everything we notice every experience we have everything we're in touch with there's something that's in touch with it there's a knowing of it an allowing of it a witnessing of it, a being conscious of it. So the, who we are has to be to do with the being conscious of it. It can't be to do with the what's it's being conscious of. Does that help? Some are nodding. <laughs> As we pay attention now. Notice the feeling of your buttocks on the floor. You, the fact that you can experience buttocks means you're not buttocks. No. The fact that you can experience seeing means there's an experiencer of seeing. The experiencer is behind the seeing. The experience behind the noticing of the thought. Everything that we can be in contact with, everything that we can experience is contained within our awareness of it. Everything. So anything I can point to this is what Nisagadatta Maharaj is pointing to. This is wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Anything I can point to in myself, anything I can notice, doesn't matter from the very gross to the very subtle. The fact that I can notice it means it's not who I am. The fact that I can see this bowl means I'm not the bowl. I'm seeing the bowl. Now that's very obvious, but it gets mixed up when we get further in. But the fact that I can see my hand I'm not hat on my hand and that which is seeing it all the way to the very subtlest sense the, the, the innate sense of martinness that seems indwelling in my being one has to look hopefully not to martinness but to one's own uh, ness. Some sense of cont- a continuity of who I take myself to be, but the fact that I can see that that's there means it's arising as an object can't be who I am. this process in the Sagadatta, who would call wisdom, the process of actually meeting our experience, experience by experience, moment by moment and don't have to shift our belief from believing this is how I am to not believing it's how I am but just to be willing to doubt. Ah, oh. bodily life. It's an object within my attention. thoughts an object within my attention is there anything I can find that isn't just an object within my attention anywhere I can point to all I can find is objects within my attention and those objects are damn slippery they're changing all the time I no sooner get a sense of oh Oh right, oh, this is my body then. Then it's changed. The constancy of the breath and the way that changes the body. the fact that it can be experienced in this way and then in that way. the fact that the body can feel delightful, and that then it can feel very heavy, that it can feel exquisite and that it can feel painful. Wisdom as a function is that attitude to really notice the relationship we have to our experience. That all of it is an object or maybe even more correctly we could say an event that arises within our knowing of it. what would it be to really attend to our life in it like that to be awake and clear about all the things I take myself to be by force of habit unexamined habit through not examining thought through not understanding thought I take myself to be it. The thought arises, oh, I wonder how long till the bell rings. And I take myself to be that thought. I get all agitated about it. I think that my well-being depends on me realizing the fruits of that thought, making the bell ring. What a tragic human comedy that we keep thinking our well-being is dependent on realizing the fruits of our thoughts. Because even when we get the fruits of our thoughts, the bell rings. Wow! Fantastic! How long do we put another thought about that we think we need to realize? This is unexamined human life trying to attain the fruits of our thoughts. And this is what the Buddha calls samsara, the endless wheel going around and round. trying to attain the fruits of our thoughts, the fruits of our longings, the fruits of our desires, the fruits of all that I think I need and want and all that I really don't want and must get rid of. If we don't examine our relationship to thought, feeling, bodily life, then we're bound to go round and round trying to attain those fruits. What the Buddha calls samsara, or what we could equally call the hamster wheel of existence. No? Seen hamster, you see the hamster on the wheel? How uh, convinced they seem to be, hamsters, that they're getting somewhere. The sagadatta says, "Love tells me I am everything." Isn't that rather beautiful. What's interesting as we explore these is that they sound like opposites. uh, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. That kind of deconstruction of life. Love tells me I'm everything. Kind of (gasps) expansion of life. When we are rather quiet and attentive... That allowing that I spoke about again this afternoon. It's a sense of including what shows up in life. The act of that including is the function of love. When we're in a state of love, the very characteristics of it are one of merging, of the dissolving of boundaries. The very nature of, the very exquisiteness of love is the loss of the sense of separation. And love is a bit of a clumsy word. It's kind of, we ask one word love to cover a vast amount of meaning which it can't, which it struggles to do by itself. And we've reduced love often in in kind of <coughs> through millions of pop songs and films and everything else to really just the, the kind of uh, romantic tension, often. And it's a bit of. A, well, the Buddha talked about four kinds of love, which I think are exquisite they're traditionally called metta karuna mudita upekkā. means traditionally called in English loving kindness compassion appreciative joy equanimity. but another way of looking at them are as the functions of love and what they are I won't speak about them at great length but Meta means the love that cares. So these are kind of, it's sort of fine-tuning what we mean by love. And it has a function. Love that cares. Compassion. Love that responds. Mudita. Love that appreciates. Upeka. Love that allows. That lets be, that accommodates. If there's that quality to our attention to our life, moment by moment, to care, to respond, to appreciate, to allow, then naturally, automatically has to, our sense of being grows, opens. And we find that nothing could possibly be left out. And we hear the sounds around in the room or outside the room. Oh my goodness. They're happening right here. In my very knowing of them or we could say loving of them when we look around at other people we're sharing the room with oh my goodness for years common sense has told me these people exist out there somewhere but where am I experiencing these other people right here in my own knowing of them it doesn't get more intimate than that Extraordinary sensual participation in life Almost erotic Participation in life That's referred to Particularly in, in some of the Sufi love poems I don't know if you're familiar I read a poem recently by Hafiz Which I tragically can't remember But there was a line in it About something like They can't stop kissing And it it was kind of using the, the idea of lovers, but it was to talk about all the objects of the world. We can't stop kissing. Everything's interpenetrating. We can't find, really, the end of one thing and the beginning of another. When we're not filtering it through common sense, through description, through ideas through all the ways we use to manufacture as I said these layers of who we take ourselves to be when there's the quietitude when there's the expansiveness when there's the love that allows, that receives that responds to life my goodness nothing is outside my knowing of it my receiving of it consciousness presence includes all experience wisdom tells me a nothing everything that arises that I might take myself to be is here within the knowing it's not the knower it's the knowing love tells me I'm everything everything that I'm in contact with, everything that I perceive, (coughs) is inside the knowing of it. What does that say about this knowing? This knowing. This knowing that we're knowing right now. This everyday consciousness. The very thing that's animating our being as we sit here right now. The thing in which bodily life is happening. I apologise for calling it a thing, but I can't find a better word. There isn't one. This context in which our body is getting revealed, this context in which our thoughts are happening, this context in which the heart moves, this context that includes everything we've ever experienced everything we can experience everything we do experience my goodness my goodness life is so close even the words so close make it sound too far away Intimacy isn't with life. Isn't something we can attain. We couldn't be more intimate with it than we are right now. It's so obvious. It's so immediate. It's so sensual. It's so shocking. We've got all these layers. I'm this and I'm that. I'm like this and I'm like that. They can't stop kissing. Bit more daring. We can't stop kissing. As Sagadatta says, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. If I look really closely into my experience, there's nowhere I can hang my identity. Whatever I notice, whatever I find, it's an event happening within my consciousness, within the knowing of it. Love tells me I'm everything. If I really allow life in. There's nothing that's excluded. But it would be a shame to get stuck on either of those positions. I am nothing. Or I am everything. A position is a stuck thing, a dead thing. Just an idea. Wisdom and love are alive. And the way we contact life in truth, moment by moment... Wisdom tells me that a function of wisdom informs consciousness that I am nothing, lest I should get caught into believing I'm this or that. The function of love informs the being that I'm everything, that nothing's exploded or separate, needs to be sought or attained or gotten rid of. Between these two, life moves, has its expression, its dance, its fulfillment. May it be so for each one of us and for all beings. And with whom we participate in this extraordinarily intimacy.